Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles. It is nice to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. Hope everything's going okay out there, wherever you are. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe at YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Vanessa Chan, author of the debut novel, The Storm We Made. I felt like a person who didn't have a lot of agency. I was stuck in this apartment. I couldn't go home. I couldn't go anywhere. And my novel was getting too sad for me, if, if you can believe it. My novel about the war, about these three children without agency trying to survive it, was getting too sad for me. And I just needed a character who could run around, be irresponsible, make decisions, all of which I felt I couldn't do at the time. And so I decided to just write an irresponsible character. I made her a spy because I like spy television and decided to experiment. I was like, okay, that was Vanessa Chan. Her debut novel is called The Storm We Made, available from Mary Sue Rucci Books, an imprint of Simon and Schuster. It is the official February pick of the Other People Book Club. It is also a national bestseller. The Storm We Made is what I think we commonly refer to as a sweeping novel. It is historical fiction set in Malaya, now known as Malaysia, during the Second World War. It is a book that is very much about the horrors of war. It is about what it means to be colonized, what it means to be an oppressor, how relationships develop between the colonized and their oppressors, and how those relationships often take on complexities. It's also a book about right and wrong, and how 
morality can get muddled in wartime. I am very pleased to have had the chance to speak with Vanessa Chan about this best-selling debut of hers. Our conversation is coming up momentarily. I would love it if you would sign up for my weekly email newsletter. You can do that at bradlisty.substack.com. I will keep you posted about the latest episodes of the show. I also share a list of things that I have been reading and finding interesting. So sign up for my newsletter if that sounds good, bradlisty.substack.com. You can also join the Other People Patreon community if you are a regular listener, if you love book culture, if you appreciate the work that I do, join the Patreon over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can get merchandise, you can get a book club subscription. Check it out at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Speaking of the book club, if you want to sign up for it directly, you can do that at otherppl.com. Get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. I curate the club, I pick the books, I interview the authors on this show. So it makes for an enriching and holistic literary experience. All right, so my guest once again is Vanessa Chan. Her debut novel is called The Storm We Made, available from Mary Sue Rucci Books. Vanessa grew up in Malaysia and is now based primarily in Brooklyn. It was great to meet her and to talk with her about this book of hers and what it took to get to this moment of pretty extraordinary publishing success right out of the gates. So I'm happy to share my conversation with Vanessa Chan with all of you right now. Once again, her debut novel is called The Storm We Made. Here I am talking with Vanessa Chan. I had started uh, an MFA program after, you know, several years, well, many years in a whole different career, which we can talk about in a minute, you know, in, in 2019. And I had just moved to New York. I had just started an MFA program and I was essentially just starting to learn how to write. So I was, you know, just starting to learn how to write short stories. I completed, I think in that first semester, probably my first short story. And there was a class assignment in an, uh, in a seminar by the novelist Marie Helene Bertino. And a recent, does, a recent guest on this program. She is a wonderful human and I owe her a lot. So she uh, assigned us, I think, the, the prompt was something like, write someone who does something on loop, write a short story. That was the end of your assignment. And I was like, great. Remember, it was uh, my first time living in New York, the end of my first semester of my MFA. And I was like, ready to, you know, to like, just be done, right? Like, you know, ready to party, ready to hand in my homework assignment. The thing about grad school that I didn't know, but learned was that well, you don't, there's no grades. So as long as you turn in your homework, you get an A. And so I was just ready to like, get it done and be done, write my 15 pages and go. And so I sat down to write this assignment and I wrote, it kind of spilled out of me. I wrote this, what I thought was a story about, you know, a, a teenage girl running through a series of, of checkpoints as she struggles to get home, you know, just before curfew during the Japanese occupation during World War II in Malaysia, while she's thinking back on the things that have happened to her family. 
And, you know, I was done. I was like, great. I turned it in and I forgot about this assignment. And Marie, uh, bless her, sent me um, a handwritten note that I still keep somewhere that says, I'm paraphrasing something along the lines of, you know, what you have here is not a short story. It's the outline or the beginnings of, of what seems like a beautiful novel. And I urge you to hold this close and I urge you to keep this precious thing and keep going. And I decided... Um, well, first I decided I just don't have time for this because, you know, I wanted to go back to Malaysia. I had all these other things I needed to do it was the end of the semester. But then um, I decided to take her advice and slowly and surely started to scribble away at different characters. And lo and behold, uh, two years later, it was 352 pages. Okay. So first of all, where did you get your MFA in New York? Uh, I started an MFA at the New School. Okay. And so... You initially resisted Marie's suggestion that this is a novel that you should work on, and then you changed your mind. Why? I didn't know how to be a novelist. You know, I didn't, I at that point had, you know, barely written any short stories. I didn't, I didn't know how to write anything longer. Plus, you know, it just, it just felt early for me. I, I had just started this program. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I definitely didn't know that I would write historical fiction. I tried to write a novel before, but um, it was, you know, half of a bad novel, autofiction novel about how much I hated my coworkers, like back in the day when I was still <laughs> had coworkers. Uh, that, as it turns out, doesn't make for a very good novel. So that sits in a drawer somewhere. But I, you know, I just never saw myself as an, full-time novelist, definitely not as a historical novelist doing research. And so it just didn't seem like the thing for me. And, um, you know, I guess you have to stay open to the things that come your way and the, and the advice from other people who have done it before that comes your way. Okay. So you didn't know how to be a novelist and yet here you are with this best-selling novel debut <laughs> sold in like what, tw more than 20 countries around the world. Like this is the dream. You clearly learned how to write a novel. Like, <laughs> what was the process? It was, it was pretty meandering. Uh, the process itself, time-wise, took about two years, which is not very long. So remember, I started this as a you know a homework throwaway homework assignment in late 2019. I continued to scribble about a little bit here and there in the early 2020, and then the entire world shut down because of the pandemic, and here I was. Uh, stuck in my small New York apartment, writing about a home that I couldn't go back to. And then in that time frame, you know, sorry to bring on a fair amount of heaviness quite early, but both my mother and my uncle passed uh, in the same month in April, uh, which was the worst month for New York as well, because it was the epicenter of the pandemic. And I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I was just stuck. I felt really helpless and kind of hopeless. And the only thing for me every morning was the only thing that gave me something to wake up for was to wake up and scribble away at this novel. And I did that. I did that the entire time, you know, as we figured out our new lives under this, uh, this new gloom. And uh, that is how this novel got written. Wow. Okay. You know, it's interesting that you say that. First of all, I'm really sorry for your losses. That's, you. I mean, the pandemic alone was a bummer, but to lose uh, beloved family members in the midst of it all, like that's just, and, and to be at a distance, like an unbridgeable physical distance, that's mm -hmm. just a lot to bear. And I keep 
talking to writers who wrote pandemic novels. That's just oh, yeah. where what's just where we are right now in the mm-hmm. publishing cycle. Like a lot of the books coming out these We're days. Written in 2020, 2021. Yes, that's, that's right. right. But what's interesting is that I just talked to Margot Livesey on this program, and she was telling me that she wrote her latest novel, The Road from Belhaven, which is set in Scotland, partly out of a sense of mourning that she could not go back to Scotland, which is where she's from. So she wrote in a way to sort of be there. And it sounds like something similar was happening with you. I think for the most part, I already had, because I'd written that sort of what I thought was a short story, I already had a sense for what I would be writing, uh, which was, as it turns out, the stories that some of my, some of the stories that my grandmother had told me over the years that I had forgotten kind of lived in me. But the thing that happened for me uh, that the pandemic changed was, I think I've obviously through a fair amount of uh, my grief and, and my, you know, nostalgia and concern about going home into the novel, but also when I first started this novel, it was about three children living through the war. You have read the novel. You know that actually there are four point of views, three of which are children living through the war. And the biggest main one is their mother, who is a spy whose actions bring about the war that her three children are living through. And that mother actually came about during the pandemic as almost a direct result of my inability to move around. I felt like a person who didn't have a lot of agency. I was stuck in this apartment. I couldn't go home. I couldn't go anywhere. And my novel was getting too sad for me, if, if you can believe it. My novel about the war, about these three children without agency trying to survive it, was getting too sad for me. And I just needed a character who could run around, be irresponsible, make decisions, all of which I felt I couldn't do at the time. And so I decided to just write an irresponsible character. I made her a spy because I like um, spy television and decided to experiment. I was like, it would be four point of views. I can always take it out if I don't like it. And as happens in novels and books, that became the core of the novel. And my pandemic experiment became essentially what everyone uses to pitch this novel. Okay. So there, there's a lot that I want to unpack. <laughs> okay. Well, Let's you do just, it. <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, what you, what you said about the origins of the actual writing of this book, first of all, as kind of a uh, rushed, somewhat rushed homework assignment, end of semester, let me just get it out of me and put this on the page and be done so I can go enjoy my summer or whatever it was. And then scribbling afterwards, some character work or maybe some scenes but in a fairly informal manner, correct? Somewhat. I am actually quite ritualistic about my writing. I do try to write a certain number of words a day. I try to write at least 888 words a day, eight being like a lucky number for Chinese people, my own personal little ritual. But yes, still, you know, nothing particularly, you know, complete. I sort of wrote chronologically scenes, character work and and what have you um, until I got you know, some version of the way with my three children characters. Okay. And then you talked about the book being unbearably sad. I'm actually excited to hear you say this because it's not something I've talked about enough on this show. And I think it's actually a common experience for many writers working on a novel that is born of some kind of personal trauma or some amalgam of traumas. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's very normal. 
And I think it's also very normal for early drafts to be unbearably sad because mm-hmm. you're trying to work it out on the page. You're trying to be mm-hmm. truthful on the page. Oftentimes the writer has genuine uh, personal feelings of sadness that inevitably find their way into the work. And yet as a fiction, as a novel that's seeking to be in communication with readers, sometimes the sadness can be overwhelming, not just for the imagined reader, but for the writer herself. (laughs) Fiction should not be a therapy report, in in my opinion, right? Therapy is for therapy. Fiction should be enjoyable for everybody involved. I mean, yes. And and yet I I always think of uh, that novel, Austerlitz. It's like the saddest book I've ever read. I don't know if I could take it. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes the unbearably sad novel can work, but you got to really have the stomach for it. And I like this idea of the Cecily character being born out of this recognition that what was currently on the page about these children in the midst of this war was just too bleak and needing the Cecily character to keep yourself writing and to make the process Mm -hmm. fun for you. There has to be some joy in it, right? Exactly. And honestly, because the, the at least two of the three children characters were born out of more real life experiences. And it was just terrible to think about, you know, I, I'm trapped at home and to think about my ancestors having had to go through some of the things that I was writing about that I just needed to imagine a character who could do ridiculous things that none of which was real. <laughs> and so, so, so wait, I, so just, just for the record, uh, there yes. are no, there are no spies in your family. Not that I know of, but Hey, I wouldn't know. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe you would. I don't know if these yeah, people maybe share. Maybe I'm their... a spy. <laughs> we'll leave that for the listener to decide. But <laughs> another, another thing that I want to ask you about with respect to the way that this book was born has to do with informality. And I don't mean to diminish the effort that you put into a book. Uh, obviously, everybody who writes and publishes a book goes through the paces one way or another. But the way that it was born as a homework assignment, the way that there were these kind of, you know, 888 word bursts that you were writing, not 100% sure maybe that it was a novel yet, but you were letting yourself sort of test the waters. I think that there's something to a sense of informality that can sometimes serve the creative process. Meaning if you put all of this pressure on yourself to write this grand historical novel from the jump and you sort of take that on as a responsibility, it can sometimes be stifling versus if you tell yourself, I'm going to write 888 words today, or I'm going to turn in this homework assignment. That's maybe in some ways the wiser approach in certain circumstances, because if you just keep doing that, the pages do eventually stack up, right? Exactly. And honestly, I think that's especially true for novels, which is something I had to learn. I personally am quite, should I admit this? I'm just going to admit it's on air. I'm kind of a rigid person. I've told you I have rituals for my writing. You know, I um, I was a short story writer for this reason, um, because there are always parameters. There's usually a specific time frame and, you know, characterization. It all fits into a nice little box. And writing of a novel was like meandering in the dark. And you think you're going somewhere and then you're not. And, and you know, you write a new character just for yourself. And there's a lot of exploring and I think that that sense of play that you talk about, that sense of 
exploration and uh, in some on some days total confusion and overwhelm uh, is necessary to the creation of a novel or at least to my creation of a novel i had to let go almost of who i am as a person which is again someone who's quite structured and orderly okay and i read and maybe this was just you describing one particular day of writing but you were describing yourself writing in a dark room with just the light of your computer screen <laughs> I'm so embarrassing. Yes, uh, I write my 888 words in a in a in my you know lit by my computer screen because I tend to write either in the mornings or later in the evenings. And uh, in um, this is the detail that you missed in that section. The um, bathrobe. The the grubby blue bathrobe <laughs> from Target. Yeah, I have my rituals. The thing about the bathrobe is it's 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 burnt because I tried to cook in it once and um it got burnt, so it's black on the. It's anyway, it's really chaotic, but it's also my ritual. I have very strict rituals, and that is my ritual. Listen, I get rituals. I think rituals <laughs> rituals can serve the process. Writing is a long, especially a novel, is a long slog. And it takes discipline one way or another, whether you're an everyday writer or you're, you know, I don't know, on the weekends, one way or right. another, you have to sit down and do it. And the piece, the detail that I'm actually wanting to know more about is the darkness. Is darkness helpful to you to have the lights off? Because I think I've actually heard this before and not too long ago, that having sort of like all the lights out except for the computer, like helps with focus. Is that... I think it's a little bit of that. I also think that I um, am a little bit light sensitive. So I don't really like, even as a child, I really like to sit in like darker rooms, much to the horror of my parents who would like get a shock. They'd come in and think no one was there and I would be there, you know, which is <laughs> like playing by myself in the dark. So um, I think that's just who I am. A uh, little bit light sensitive, a little bit odd. <laughs> and so it all, it all comes together in the writing when you are, I think, the writing is when you are especially yourself. Um, so I'm like a worse version of this cave troll that I grew up as. Okay. So <laughs> all of which is relatable. I think not only to me, but probably many people who are mm -hmm. writerly who are listening. The 888 words. <laughs> I'm I'm a guy who nine is my number. I like oh. nines. Yes. So I get like having a number. I get like having a kind of superstitious, even emotional attachment to a number like what I wonder about is if you're trying to get to 888 words in a day, mm -hmm. you're counting and then like, no. it's hard to like, are you counting? You must be. No, I, I mean, I, I tried to hit, yeah, I, I do count. I tried to hit 888 and the thing is you, I often exceeded it. Oh, okay. So like my yeah. question was like, would you then like delete back to make no. sure that you, no, okay. No, right. no. But I would try to hit at least 888 and very often I exceeded it. Honestly, it started because Jamie Attenberg did a thousand words of summer and I was like, what a great idea, except that I have authority issues. And so decided I needed my own version of that because <laughs> I couldn't follow her guidance because I have my own problems. Fair. So I created 888 just for me. Got it. Okay. But it yeah. works for you. Works for me. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns 
depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the historical context that you're dealing in here, because I think some people listening might not be aware of the details, but in broad strokes, we are in the mid 20th century in Malaya, now known as Malaysia, which is a colonized land, like double colonized, colonized first by the British and later by the Japanese uh, who invade the Imperial Japanese army invades in World War II. And so the characters that you have created and which are born out of your family history, at least to some degree, are living in this place and in this time and are suffering under the weight and the effects of colonialism. That's right. Anything that I've missed? (laughs) (laughs) What an amazing summary. Um, The only thing I think that I will mention is that, um, you know, this novel exists between the thirties and the forties, which is when the British, you know, the British, sort of cede the um, the land to the Japanese in, in terms of occupation. But Malaya, Malaysia as a country was colonized for almost 500 years, starting in the 1500s. So we had four colonizers, the Portuguese, the Dutch, the British, the Japanese, and the British again. So just wow. something to know. This was, it's not just the British and the Japanese. It was a land of colonization, which is why I think in the course of reading the novel, you realize that the main character, Cecily, even though she is looking for something more for her country, doesn't ever conceive of Malaya as an independent state. She always, she just thinks Japan may be a better colonizer and maybe she will become a spy to help usher in a different colonizer. But the idea of independence doesn't occur to her because it has not, none of her ancestors have seen an independent Malaya at that point. Yeah, it wasn't like it wasn't, it wasn't part of her it wasn't reality a model at all. that she could conceive of. It's interesting. I've read, this is the third book I've read this year that depicts a land colonized by the British in the 20th they, century. They were, they were pretty big colonizers. I mean, I gotta say, <laughs> I'm, I'm not really high on the British right now. I read a book about Burma and then I'm reading right now uh, a book about the history of Palestine just to sort of get my mm. chops up historically. And it's like, oh, it was the British initially who help to uh you know create divide and conquer baby that was their way yeah. yeah so 
Anyway, these stories from your family, I mean, I know that when it comes to the Cecily character, you're kind of creating out of whole cloth or mostly whole cloth, but you mentioned earlier that you do have a wealth of family history and family stories that inspired the creation of the novel. And I think the stories from your grandmother in particular, is it your paternal grandmother? Yes. Talk about her a little bit. What was she like and what kinds of stories did she tell you? Uh, she was wonderful. I was the oldest grandchild. And so I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house growing up after school, uh, when my parents had date nights, just all the time. I really liked them. They really liked me. So I just spent a lot of time there. And, you know, I think, you know, as I got older, I would, you know, sometimes ask her what her life was like, you know, when she was young, when she was my age. And if I would ask her directly, she you know, she just, she didn't want to talk about it. She would just tell me to like do my chores, leave her alone, which I think is how people of that generation dealt with the trauma. They're like, we survived, it's done. We don't want to get into the details, but I also, you know, she's very chatty, uh, my grandma, and I was also very chatty, but I learned to stay a little bit quiet. And often her stories would come out in the form of lessons or in conversation with me if I weren't to ask her, if I didn't ask her directly. So you know, if I didn't want to finish my food, you know, she'd go on and on about how, you know, they had to eat tapioca and paper with their rice rations in order to survive. If I didn't want to go to my badminton lessons, because I was bad at them, she'd be like, you know, we didn't have extra extracurricular activities in your in our day. We had to cut a hole in the fence after curfew so we could sneak over to the neighbor's house and Mr. Fernandez could teach us how to tango. And that's all we did in our free time. And I'd be like, cool. I still don't want to go to badminton, uh, but, <laughs> that's but nice, thank Grandma. you for that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, um, over the years, I learned all sorts of things. I think in the novel you read, there's a little, a little snippet about how to avoid an airstrike when it's above you, you know, and it was all these things that they, they were like little nuggets that I think became kind of like almost like part of the setting and the backdrop of the novel that lent it authenticity. It wasn't necessarily, you know, major plot points, I think, that made it into the novel, like about her life, but it was more just the little things that she told me that gave the novel its uh, direction. And you grew up in Malaysia? I did. I, I grew up in a small house with an orange roof next to the market. I lived there for 19 years and got a scholarship and went to my undergrad program at UC Berkeley with my scholarship, my suitcase and 50 bucks in my pocket, never having been on a plane. Wow. And And you were raised outside of Kuala Lumpur or? Just outside. I was raised in what I think people here would call a suburb, but it was bigger than a suburb. It was like, it's called Patalang Jaya. It was kind of a, a large city town. And the detail you mentioned earlier about how to avoid an airstrike when planes are flying over your head, it's interesting that you mention it because I did note it when I was reading. I was like, ooh, that's a very good detail. And I had to imagine that you were drawing on some research or family anecdote. But what is it? Like the it's the planes are most dangerous once they've gone past you because the bombs they drop sort of trail behind them. Is that? Yes. She said that you don't, the plane has gone, you know, away up diagonally away from you you think it's safe to stand up but it isn't because the the bombs drop at an angle so she was like you have to wait till they're much further away before you can stand up from your position on the ground because you're usually flat on the ground all right well and i was like everybody listening i hope that i never need to use this in my lifetime of course when i received this information i was probably a teenager i was like what (laughs) 
Right. Why am I getting this? Right. But I'm like, I'm going to file that away. You never know. I know. World is crazy. But uh, <laughs> you, so you're getting these stories from your grandmother who was like between 12 and 15, I believe, during yeah. the years of the Second World War and the Japanese occupation. Mm-hmm. And that had, I mean, like you say, very difficult times, not necessarily times that she or others of her generation necessarily love to remember aloud. That's right. So traumatic. Terribly traumatic, I think. And, you know, I always compare it kind of to us. You know, we 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 forget sometimes, or we forget often that we are living through the largest, um, you know, the deadliest pandemic that's happened in forever, if not in a long time. But like if our, I always think if our grandchildren were to ask us, you know, grandma, grandpa, what did you do every day during the pandemic? We'd be like literally nothing. Like, I don't have very much to offer you. And I think that's kind of how I think about her. If she thinks about her life every day, if she wants to exclude reliving the trauma, every day she just had, she had to live. She just lived her life and she didn't have very much else to, to, to say about it beyond that. And so I think it's, I think that's the parallel that I draw, but at the same time, I felt important to me. And I think it feels important to people of my generation, which is probably why you're seeing more books emerge about the time frame. that these stories, these lessons, they, you know, this history doesn't die with their generation because, you know, they are getting on in age and uh, the Pacific theater is so underwritten as part of uh, World War II history, even though World War II was obviously you know, well and widely covered from a European's perspective, that we need to keep these stories. They need to exist, even if they are painful, and they need to be written down somewhere. Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting point that the Pacific theater of, the, of World War II is underwritten compared to the European theater. I think we can name on probably one hand, especially if we're talking about literature and fiction, probably on one hand the number of books that have been written in the last 20 years. It's definitely a part of history that I was pleased to see on the page and a place that I was pleased to learn about. And when you talk about the telling of this story, you can't do so without making note of the fact that you are dealing in multiple timelines and multiple points of view. It's integral to the, to the novel and sort of couldn't tell this particular story in the absence of this, I don't think, unless you like zoomed out and went super omniscient, but. I tried. <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk about how you landed on the particular approach that you did, because not only are you dealing with two timelines and four POVs, but then you have to manage the pacing of the novel vis-a-vis alternating back and forth. And you also have to avoid losing the reader in the process of doing this because it can be easy to do, right? You're jumping around in time, you're jumping around in POV. You've got to make sure that the story, the novel reads seamlessly. So what was that process like? Well, first of all, to anyone listening, if you want to write four point of views in two timelines, I don't recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) It was very difficult. It required me to just like mutter to myself a lot and act like a crazy person because I had to keep it all you know, aligned and on track. And it was, it was challenging, but, you know, I, again, I started with three point of views, which were the three children at the, uh, living at the end of the war. It seemed simple enough. Right. And then when I incorporated their mother, Cecily, that's when things started to get difficult because I realized that her actions have both a cause, like her actions are 
have a cause and effect and the cause and effect nature of her actions, you know, being a spy in the before times, impacting her children in the current times, had to be reflected. And I tried to write this, you know, in the form of flashbacks so that everyone could be in the same timeline. That didn't work. I agonized over it. I had um, a thesis advisor. Her name was Mira Jacob. And I remember complaining to her endlessly about this. This was during the pandemic when we were all doing everything by Zoom. I was like, it's so hard. I don't know how to do this. And you know, I, you know, it's, it's, you know, but you know, when you write multiple point of views, you have to keep them in one timeline. And she goes, who said that? And I was like, well, the rule is, you know, in, in like in literature, when you have like a complicating factor of multiple point of views, you have to keep things in one timeline. And she goes, no, no. Who, who said that? Like literally who said that? (laughs) And I was like, I don't know. That's what is said. And she goes, no, you said that. No one else said that. And I was like, oh my gosh. So anyway, we went back and forth on literally who said a couple times before I realized that maybe I should try writing Cecily in a separate timeline and see if I could integrate it. And that's what I did. And it and it worked. It took a lot of work because again, I had to sh- I had to flip back and forth in time. I had to show something happening in 1945 that was caused by 1935 and go back and forth subtly so that the reader isn't annoyed. But every time the reader had a question, I would explain it and vice versa. That's that was the intention for the novel. But it was it was tough to do. And it took someone else questioning my long held beliefs that I made up for myself. Well, thank God for Mira Jacob, right? <laughs> <laughs> Literally who said. Yeah. That's all she had to say to me. She hadn't she had don't think she'd even read the pages at that point. She was just listening to me ramble on and she was like, Sounds like a made up problem to me. <laughs> Well, it's stuff we do, right? We tell ourselves, <laughs> where we make up these like, you know, rules. fictional rules for ourselves that don't even have any bearing in reality. And mm-hmm. I think that the alternating POVs and the alternating timelines are part of what makes this novel so propulsive. I love it when books do that. I mean, if they do it well, and I'm not lost, because there's a great sense of motion. There is this great sense of cause and effect as you sort of flip back and forth between uh, past and future. And the spy narrative in the book I quite liked because much like you, I am a huge fan of spy stories. That's like my guilty pleasure. Like if I'm on Netflix and I'm trying to, you know, watch something to fall asleep, like I just want, I don't don't think there's enough of it, frankly. I love a good double agent or like a good bad spot or a detective. Like I love it. Okay. So what are some of your, I'm just curious, like off the top of your head, do you have recommendations? Am I putting you on the spot? Because. Oh no, no. I mean, I, I mean, I like the really camp ones. There was this really, it was very popular in Australia. I don't know if it's as popular here, but it was called Miss Fisher's murder mysteries. It was a detective murder mystery. I love to watch. Um, oh, this is back in the nineties. It was very popular. It was called alias. It oh was yeah. Sure. Not good, but it was great. Yeah. <laughs> um, I watched James Bond quite a bit growing up. I grew up in the Pierce Brosnan era and then went backwards to watch all the other ones and then didn't like Daniel Craig and stopped. But yeah, I uh, recently tried The Diplomat. I didn't really like it, but you know, I will try any spy or detective duo or single person that pops up for me on any of the streaming services. I will try it at least two episodes. Yeah. Yeah, I like, and I think something about those stories where that when they travel you, I like to travel. Yeah, in, in 
film and television and in books because I don't get to do it enough. And I, uh, I love when there's like a spy story that's set. Oh, the Americans, obviously. Oh, I love the Americans. Right. With Carrie I, Russell and uh, her husband. What's his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to watch that. I tried to find that and it wasn't on Netflix, I don't think. I think it might be on Hulu. I don't have Hulu. Yeah, so. they probably make you pay for it now. But you, there's a great set piece. I'm not going to describe it because I sort of would love for people to just read it and get to experience it in the course of the uh, novel. But I had to like tip my cap a little bit. Like these are clearly, I could, I could sense your love of the spy genre in that <laughs> scene. You know the scene I'm talking about at the party? No. Like, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah I was sure. just sort of like, okay, this is, I think I kind of intuited that you're a fan. Actually that scene I thought was, was unrealistic and camp and was going to remove it, but I didn't know how to move to the next chapter. So I just left it in and no one ever told me to remove it. So I left it in. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you know, if there's some, I mean, it's fun. It's a fun scene in its own way. You know, it's also dramatic, but I just, uh, I had a good time with that particular part of the book. And I read that, I mean, the book from a publication story standpoint is like a great triumph for a debut novel. Can you talk a little bit about finishing the manuscript, getting it into shape, finding representation, and then getting it sold? Yeah, I was, in terms of, that part of the story, an incredibly lucky person. Um, it took me like 15 lifetimes and 15 kinds of lives lived to get to that point, which we will talk can talk about in a minute. But the actual publication sale and deal was amazing. So I, you know, finished the novel. And by the time I finished the novel, I... Um, I had already published several short stories that had gotten some recognition online. And so I already had some agents reaching out to me. So I was really quite fortunate. I didn't have to query cold. I sent it to a couple of different agents and um, got a few offers and then went with my agents at Trellis, uh, Stephanie and Michelle, who are wonderful, who then said, we did a couple rounds of edits and then they said, all right, we're ready to take this out. And I was like, cool. Uh, unfortunately, they were ready to take it out. I remember this was January 2022. And I was like, see, the thing is, it's Lunar New Year and I usually go home and I've already booked a flight, so I'm going to go. <laughs> and they were like, oh, cool, you do that. We'll let you know what happens. So I remember that I left, the manuscript ran out on like a Wednesday or a Thursday. I left on a Friday or a Saturday. It takes 24 hours to get back to Malaysia. And in addition to that is 12, Malaysia's 12 hours ahead. So I arrived on Monday morning, which would have been Sunday evening uh, in Malaysia, Sunday evening in New York. And my phone was blowing up. I turned on my phone. It was blowing up. I had emails. I had these missed calls. I had voicemails. And my agents were like, all right, we have lots of interested editors. Um, uh, when they're interested editors, they want to do a phone call with you before they make an offer. And so your first call starts uh, Monday morning, New York time, which would have been 12 hours from the time I arrived. And I was like, great. So, so wait, wait I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to keep up with the time zones. Like, so does this put you in the middle of the night? Yeah, middle of the yes, night. Yes, exactly. So that's the other thing. Um, because Malaysia is 12 hours ahead. I did, you know, a dozen of these phone calls over the course of a week between 10 to 12, but 10 p.m. to midnight in Malaysia, which would have been 10 a.m. in New York, and 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. In, in Malaysia, which would have been 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. in New York. Basically, I did them 
in the middle of the night, essentially. Just running on uh, adrenaline and caffeine, adre- I have to No, there, there's one more complicating factor. Um, this was a time during the pandemic when there were still uh, quarantines for travel. And so luckily I was not quarantined like far away. I was allowed to quarantine what they call a home quarantine. I was quarantining with in my father's apartment, but I was not allowed to leave the apartment. So I had um, a GPS tracker that I had to wear that had a red buzzer that if I stepped out of bounds of the apartment would buzz and scream and alert somebody and they would come and arrest me supposedly. Mm -hmm. So uh, I wore that the whole time I was doing these calls, which was a great conversation starter, I suppose. (laughs) And again, I was doing these calls in the middle of the night. My dad's Wi-Fi is kind of spotty. It's not great. Uh, And my dad's kind of a busybody. My dad was like, what is going on? I must know. And so he would wander around pretending to cook, pretending to make me dinner, pretending to, he just wanted to eavesdrop. And he would like whisper, your dinner is on the counter. While the entire (laughs) leadership of like, whichever imprint was like on the Zoom with me. And I'm like, oh my God, dad, everyone can see you go away. But then I suppose added to like the authenticity. I don't really know. Uh, They were probably charmed. They were probably charmed by him. (laughs) I didn't mean to be charming. I was just like, what is happening? So that went on. I was jet hopelessly jet lagged. And finally, by the end of the week, the auction closed. My deal came through. It was wonderful. My quarantine lifted and I went over to my grandma's house because it was the Lunar New Year. It was like time to celebrate. I went over and I was like, Grandma, guess what? I sold my book. And she was like, lovely, lovely. So are you going to sweep the floor for ahead of the New Year tomorrow? Or are you going to stand there yammering away? <laughs> so there you go. Your family back, just keeps, keeps you humble. You know? I was going to say back down to earth immediately. Yep. Mm-hmm. But that's great. I mean, that's the dream scenario. That is not common. I hope you realize. Like, for- Oh, I know. I do. I realize it's very uncommon. And it is... Despite the chaos, too, I really appreciated that 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 is the origin story for this book, that I was at home, despite it being really chaotic during the pandemic that I had written this book in, uh, and I was able to see my family and tell them. They were the first ones to find out. My dad was there when the auction closed. So how does that work? Like for you, the auction process, uh, you know, to go through and have all these different publishers vying, obviously they're making offers. But I've heard from people on this show and from friends of mine over the years that like, it's not always highest number wins. Sometimes it's about feeling like you have a good connection with the editors. It's some combination of things, right? Yes. I think it's, you know, you meet, you do, I guess for lack of another word, you do a vibe check with these editors because you meet with them, they meet with you and you see, you know, they explain to you their editorial vision for the book, like what they want to change, what they feel they want to keep how they intend to take this book out, how they want to pitch it. And, you know, that helps you understand. It's kind of like a first date, but like a very detailed one. Uh, you do a bunch of those. And then it's like, it's like speed dating. It's like speed dating. Kind of like speed dating, but with far higher stakes, in my opinion. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, a book versus a life partner, a book far, right. more, far more important. Uh, <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, and then they come in with their offers. And what you want is that the highest offer is the person that you like the most, which is what happened for me. Uh, Again, I was very lucky. I have very good agents, combination of all of it. Um, And but sometimes it does happen that, you know, you see you leave a little bit of money on the table to go with someone who you feel like has a better vision for your book, has a longer, you you see yourself working with over a long period of time. Because again, hopefully as a writer, you have more than one book in you, more than two books in you, and you want to work with someone for 
as long as you will be writing. So was it a one book deal or was it a multi-book deal? It was a two book deal. I have a collection of stories uh, coming out, I don't know, 2026, I think it's called The Ugliest Babies in the World, uh, a title which I'm quite personally proud of. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, those two books. And then, you know, of course, I hope to write more. Wow. So in terms of getting to this now, this stage of your career, or I guess your, yeah, your broader career where you are a novelist, a best-selling novelist. Crazy. Crazy. <laughs> and I should mention too, that I think I, I touched on this earlier, but the book also sold in more than 20 foreign markets, yeah. which is a lot, including Japan. Including Japan. Which has to be especially gratifying. It was, uh, it was emotional for me. Uh, they wrote me a letter. I think they thought they had to woo me, which of course they didn't, to say that they were excited to publish this book and excited to share this history. Because typically in Japan, a lot of the books about the region are either about soldiers going to the front or about you know the impact the Japanese people had at large, which again, pretty terrible with the atom bomb, but not a lot about the impact you know, Imperial Japan had on the wider world. And they were excited to share this book uh, uh, put it on the shelves for Japanese people to read. And I thought that was absolutely incredible. I never thought that I would have a publisher in Japan. Who is the publisher? Shunjusha. Shunjusha. Okay. Well, good for them. Kudos. I know. That's exciting. And the book's going to be, I mean, the book's all over the world. If not now, then soon, right? Yeah. It's, it's the rollout is starting. It's been a couple, the UK has Australia, Malaysia, and then it's going to keep rolling out. Brazil comes out in two weeks, I think. You get to get a copy of all these different iterations I of do, your book. I do. I hope to line them up and 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 uh, and admire them and find a space for them on my ever fill it, fill, full shelf. But I've got to find a place for them. You will find a place for the foreign <laughs> editions of your novel, right? Even if you have to donate some other books. <laughs> and I got to say too, you know, you seem like the kind of person. You've got the great set design. You've got a po- like I think a poster sized cover of your novel framed behind you. I can imagine you doing a very artful job of arranging oh, the foreign you. editions of your novel on a shelf. <laughs> thank you. I mean, we we are the, the we're Zoom now. We've got to set things up nicely in the background. Yeah, I think it's great. Never had I, to think about that before. I need to do a better job. I don't know what to do because this is the only acoustic choice I have. I have to talk into a corner because this room has kind I'm in my garage. So it's got That's it's, a very nice garage. It is, but it's got concrete floors. So it's ah. an it's a it's a living space and a working space to a degree, but the acoustics stink. So I have to sort of be pointed in this direction. And so you can just kind of see the TV in the background. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, love I it. think it looks great. There's like texture, there's like little I see vases. It's nice. Okay. I mean it could be worse. And and by the way, it has been worse in different er- <laughs> different eras of this podcast. <laughs> As some of my guests know, I used to have people in person in my old garage, which was like literally an old garage that was freezing. Wait, you would have people come to your old garage to this do a podcast? This was all pre-pandemic. And I mean like shutting an old rickety door and there was like a wasp's nest in the garage while we were talking. It was Selling points. You're sell- was... <laughs> really selling it to me right now. I, I absolutely sounds really safe. <laughs> there are some authors I think back on who I had on the show 
like esteemed, you know, literary figures. And I'm just like, what was I thinking? Put that in your garage. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know how Taylor Swift has like eras? These are your eras. You These have are like, my, yeah. you know, the cool backdrop, the wasp nest era, the like concrete floor era. <laughs> you are very fortunate, I would argue, to be in the post-pandemic concrete floor era of the show. <laughs> Getting you to, need to create an album. You need to create an album with all your different eras. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Maybe that's something I'll do in the future. But uh, <laughs> I want to talk to you about your broader career and yes. the road that you have traveled. You mentioned earlier that you came over to the States as a scholarship student at UC Berkeley. Mm-hmm. What did you study there? Like, I, I don't think writing was necessarily your aim at that stage of your life. Well, could it be because I studied political economy, which is like economics for people who are bad at math. <laughs> Good <laughs> which to you know. Can do it, which you can do at Berkeley because it's kind of like you can make up your own major. Like there's a major in Berkeley called Peace. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's a great school. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, no, it was really funny. I arrived with my, you know, my $50 and I remember I got to my dorm and uh my roommate felt really sorry for me because I'd missed orientation because I didn't know what that was. And she was like, you have to go to Target to get bed sheets." And I was like, who's that? <laughs> like, what does that mean? <laughs> um, luckily, I, you know, you and you're like that age, pretty adaptable. So I did adapt and it was got better. But um, yeah, I, uh, I, you know, did my undergrad political economy, made it through. And then I had the great fortune of graduating into um, the last financial crisis, which I remember the the story I tell is my graduation day was the same day that people walked out of Lehman Brothers with their banker's boxes. Oh my like God. Like the day it all broke. So 2008. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, 2008, 2009, I was like, you know, looking, great time to be like an, an unskilled person looking for a job with a degree in political economy who couldn't do math and a foreigner who needed a work visa. I was like, wow. So I just did like whatever crap ass, sorry, whatever job I you could can, do. You can say crap ass on my show, just so you know. <laughs> okay. I was like, you can edit it if you want. No, no. Um, and, you know, I had all kinds of weird jobs. I had jobs helping bankrupt companies, like sell themselves to other slightly less bankrupt companies. You know, I ended up falling into like, like public relations doing this sort of work for bankrupt companies. And then when the economy improved, doing public relations for companies that wanted to be bought in mergers and acquisitions, and finally ended up at um, Meta Facebook, it was called then Meta, for several years, handful of years, slightly more, doing all sorts of things. Uh, and, And the last job was with crisis and financial communications, which as you can imagine, was quite busy. I was going to say. (laughs) And got residency in a green card. And finally was like, wow, I no longer have to follow whichever job will take me based on, you know, being able to sponsor my visa. I have the freedom to do what I want. I could finally be creative. And I never, you know, I mentioned earlier that I'm a pretty regimented person. And the reason I'm a regimented person is I was always worried about having to be deported worrying about my immigration status because I, you know, I, I, there was no other, uh, my options were I could go back to Malaysia, fine, I suppose, or I could stay here, but in order to stay here, I needed to make sure I was always employed (laughs) by a company that would sponsor me. And so I was fine. I finally had this, um, this freedom to do whatever it is I wanted. So I thought to give the writing thing a shot. 
I applied to grad school, was rejected everywhere because wasn't a very good writer back then and got into the new school, was like, woohoo, and moved to New York. I said, I'd give this, I'd give the MFA thing two years, which is how long a program is. See what happens. That was four and a half years ago. So I think we did okay. Okay. So like I said, 15 different lives. It took a while. It takes a while to get there. And then once I got there, it seems like it accelerated, but I had to be ready. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When was the earliest that you entertained the idea, just the notion that you might want to try to be a writer? Like, were you a big reader as a kid? And were you sort of like nursing this dream privately? I think, I, you know, I don't know if it was like a big dream, but I always, I did enjoy reading and writing. I definitely read a lot, you know, book uh, libraries and bookshops back in Malaysia were like my first babysitter. But I also uh, wrote bad poetry to my parents and my grandparents that they still whip out when they want to remind me of my place. <laughs> so my poetry from second grade will be read to me. The next time I go back to Malaysia, which is in two weeks, I will definitely be read to me. And, uh, you know, I did stuff like that. And I did, you know, while I was working on my various corporate jobs, go to different writing workshops here and there. But I was never very good. I think I realized that although I can multitask in most things, I cannot multitask with my creativity. I really admire people who can, who do the thing where they wake up early and they write before they go to work. The notion of having 300 emails waiting for me meant that like my ability to be creative just didn't exist without like in tandem with, you know, having these other jobs. And so I had to do it's separately. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 300 emails. Email stresses me out. There's, Does it? Well, I mean, just the constant churn of it. Well, I mean, don't you spend a lot of time coordinating on email? Uh, I don't. I kind of just wake up and start deleting things. Maybe some <laughs> things I shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I just, it was just so much, so much email, so much other stimuli and so much other stress that I, I, I couldn't do it. Other people can. It, I just knew I had to learn that it wasn't for me. I tried to write all these novels and these bad stories and they were just uh, absolutely terrible. You needed some, t- you needed some time to focus. Mm-hmm. Like that's what the I MFA. Need clear, a clear brain and unstructured time. I know that's that right. Now. Yeah. 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 Especially maybe at the beginning, but you know, just in general, novels take a lot. Writing a collection of stories, like writing fiction, like the amount of intense concentration and just hard labor that it takes and reading you all, you know, reading is a part of the process too. That takes time. Like I always, I always complain about this to my wife. I'm just like, there's really no shortcut in terms of the reading. Like you can't, I, I don't know how to speed read. Maybe I should learn, but I, uh, I just feel like you, you could just, read, you could, you could do what I do, which is such a sacrilege, which is you read the end first. I sometimes do. do. I sometimes do. Oh really? Do. People I mean, get really mad at me. No, I mean, you do what you got to do. <laughs> <laughs> or, or you, you know, the thing that I do, but this makes my brain hurt, is I sometimes get the audiobook and listen at double speed. But oh. the level of concentration that it takes, because if you miss, like if your brain leaves the story for even a second, 
like a chapter is gone because the person is jabbering at you so quickly. But I, it's, I, I could never do that. Yeah, it's not fun. It's not pl- and it's not enjoyable. You know, it's not the way that it should be. But anyway, you you were at Facebook for eight years. Uh, I got to ask, like, were no, you ever f- five and a half, six, not oh, eight, not eight? Okay, you just you did eight because I incepted you because eight's my lucky number. Oh, that's right. Okay, or maybe there was an eight year period after you graduated between then and two thousand and eight. Were... Yeah, you know, you got incepted again. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I'm just going to keep using the number eight until I get. <laughs> I get it right. <laughs> but you were at Facebook for a number of years. You were working in their public relations and sort of crisis mm-hmm. management. Mm-hmm. Like, did you ever interact with Mark Zuckerberg? Was he around? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I interact with them all the time. You did. Okay. Yeah. What do you think? Especially of towards the end of my career, because I, you know, I, uh, you know, there was a lot of crisis and there was a lot of business issues. And so I was there all the time. Okay. Um, we're not like best friends or anything, you know, uh, but uh, yeah, I did. We're colleagues. Um, yeah. I'll, all I'll say is that they were, they were, they may have had ethical issues as a company of the good employer. And, um, you know, he is, he is literally what you see is what you get. So what you see is like kind of like an awkward guy, but like who, who is, you know, fairly ruthless and his business continues to thrive. That's literally who he is. There's no, there's nothing, there's no underlying anything. That's yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's he, the he's secret. exactly what he appears in his public persona, which is like a little awkward, stares too long, but like his brain is always worrying that that's him. That's him. Okay. And so did you, like you worked there, I'm assuming you did pretty well for yourself. Like did that process of work and like maybe like stock options or something did that help you make the transition to moving to new york in graduate school i have to believe that it yeah. would it was i was very uh fortunate you know again employed by a tech company meant that i was i had some financial stability I'm also single and childless and petless at the time as well and so i was like i you know i can do this i can make this this uh do this experiment i have the financial stability and no um dependence and i can try this thing out my only sort of dependent at the time was my mom who was already ill but we had her covered more or less there was a period during graduate school where i thought i would have to drop out to support her but it it was fine uh but other than that yeah i you know i i think all of the difficulties that I'd had, you know, immigration wise, also just like working in really misogynistic and challenging work environments uh, prior to Facebook, just just really bad places, honestly, got me to a place where, you know, I it almost was sort of well, it didn't really pay off, but I got what I needed to make the next step. Well, good for you. And you said you were petless, but it sounds like that you were petless and now you have a pet. Oh, I mean, I'm still petless, but I consider every day getting a dog and, but I don't know. We'll see. Again, I'm leaving for six weeks. So I'm like, oh, right. You got to get a little dog. Maybe you can, or you got to get it. Like, what do they call it? Like you have to have an emotional support certificate and you can like, you can bring your great Dane onto Southwest Airlines or (laughs) these people. That was a very large, like, um, some sort of poodle mix behind me the other day that was yeah. furious at being on the plane, but it, it was a large dog. I was like, wow. Do you have a dog? I do. A pet? Yeah, she's back there. I don't know if you can see her. Let's see. No. She's kind of hidden behind that pillow. But yeah, she sits. Oh. She sleeps back there. And like, I, but I do not. One thing I do not do is I do not claim her as an emotional support animal. 
which I get it. Like people have to fly. They don't want to leave their dogs behind. It's like a practical issue, but I do sometimes eye roll a little bit when all of these people I know, like friends of mine will be like, you know, my Labradoodle is my emotional support animal. I'm like, no, they're not. You just don't want to leave them behind. You're trying to fly them. And, you know, there are a lot of dogs on planes. I feel like the airlines are starting to get wise to it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's a little ridiculous, but you know what? I don't have a problem. If I'm on a plane and somebody's got a dog, it doesn't bother me. I think I just think I don't, I don't, I, it doesn't really bother me unless they're like very furry because I'm like a little allergic. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, People so, with allergies. Yeah. That's like, that's a problem. But it's honestly, it's, they're cute. It's fine. Yeah. You know, I think, I think I left all my, like, um, I used to get angry about everything and then I left it all behind in like my previous jobs. I don't, I don't get that angry about anything anymore. <laughs> I'm like, cool. You, but fine. you were getting angry a lot earlier. I worked 18 hours a day, Brad. I was angry all the time. Oh yeah. That'll do it. <laughs> yeah. And working for bad, like for not so nice people that'll do it too yeah i was just i was just very pissed off i used to have a job that um uh, i had to reply email i had to wake up four times a night to reply emails on multiple time zones that's so stupid oh my god work can be crazy (laughs) it it can be so this is this is the dream job all i get to do is like wander around with my novel it's great and that's the best thing that could have ever happened so you are right now just making your living as a writer of fiction Yes, for now. We'll see if other opportunities arise related to this. But I, yeah, I don't really have any further <laughs> ambitions to do anything beyond uh, anything writing and writing adjacent. Yeah, it's a good gig if you can make it work. It's a, it's a great gig. Now, it's what the about... the best one I've ever had. Yeah. Well, what about film rights? Did the film rights sell to this novel? No, um, they're out. Uh, we'll... we'll cross your fingers and toes they're they're what I, you know what i don't know how it works they're out apparently listen nobody knows how it works that's the big <laughs> secret it's a complete chaos i live in los angeles so i can tell you, Do you? yes and i know people and i've been through this like no, and your garage is above water right now barely yeah okay yeah so far knock on wood okay but uh yeah there's like the old adage the william goldman adage like nobody knows anything i think that's true nobody knows anything <laughs> But it feels like there's a lot of good momentum behind this novel and it's done well. There's like the Good Morning America pick, right? Mm-hmm. That stuff yeah. matters. That stuff helps. It does. It really does. It really, I mean, I was joking with someone. I couldn't believe that my like novel about Malaysia, this tiny country that no one knows is being blasted to all of America, all parts of America on a morning show watched by 3 million people. It was, I couldn't. It was crazy. Wait, were you on? Were you on Good Morning America? You appeared. You did you go to the studio? It was my first live interview ever. Blacked oh. out the whole time, but apparently it turned out great. You blacked out. Yeah. Well, I don't remember it. I, I performed, but I don't remember anything. Wow. Uh, but uh, my friends say it turned out great. Have you watched? <laughs> have you watched the playback? A little bit. I just I'm like. Oh. <laughs> what about your? Uh, what about? I mean, I'm sure you look great, but like. Yeah, this is how I would be if I ever had to be on Good Morning America. I'd be like, "What do I wear?" Uh, oh, I, clothes! I I got clothes. You got clothes. I don't. I, got, I don't I got, got clothes. clothes. I got sweatpants. So I would be like, <laughs> "What does a person wear on Good Morning? Do I wear a suit?" But that's not me. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I would struggle. You do wear a suit though, or you wear, or you wear like a, a set of some sort, like a blazer. I wore a a, a fancy girl suit. 
like a, a pantsuit. It was gold. It was gold, though. Yeah, it was kind of cool. Oh, I'm gonna have to. Can I look this up on YouTube? Of course. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. You anywhere? You just Google my name. It shows up. And who was the uh, who was interviewing you? Uh, who's on Good Morning? Uh, I had two segments. So the for the live segment, it was a guy called Whit Johnson, who's the weekend. Um, anchor and then for the pre-packaged it was a an anchor called juju chang who um is a is pretty well known okay clearly not by me though i, sh- I do have to say wit johnson sounds like the host of good morning america <laughs> i'm gonna say nothing he was great <laughs> yeah no i i know nothing against i'm just like man wit johnson uh, all right well congratulations to you Thank you. And look, now you're also in the Other People Book Club. I'm assuming you're in a blackout I right heard now. That. You're blacked out right now. You don't even remember. You won't even remember this when it's over. And how long did you spend deciding what to wear? You know, to talk to some guy who's in his garage. <laughs> well, actually, so tomorrow is the Lunar New Year, so I'm wearing red. Oh. For that reason, because it's lucky. I'm trying. I'm trying to time this interview. You are wearing black, which is very unlucky, actually. Really? Yes. For the for the for, at, at all times or just now? Oh well, well no for all, at all times, but particularly for the Lunar New Year. Jesus Christ! Okay, I'm gonna go change. I have. Uh... <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm messing oh. with you. <laughs> you can delete this. Oh good. Well, no, I, I was gonna say I'm trying to time this interview so that we wrap up with some some combination of eights. In no. The, we want. <laughs> I feel like obliged to, to uh, try to honor your Some lucky combination number. of eights. It's three. <laughs> well, I guess it's twelve for you. Yeah, yeah it's going to be tough, but it will. You know, we're going to end on the number eight in spirit. Three one eight. Three three is also a lucky number. Which is the square root of nine, which is my lucky number. So I mean. Oh I wow! Full circle. Full circle. Here we are. Uh, it's great to meet you. Congratulations on the storm we made. Best of luck with what is it called? The ugliest babies in the world. Yes, perfect. Okay, now is that done or are you still working on it? I turned it in um, and my editor has to edit it and then, you know, that process will begin. But I have turned it in, yes. And then are you working on anything else? I am. I am working on two other things, but uh, they are very early and I have no idea where they're going yet. And I've also had to put them on pause because, you know, book tour and you got to focus on the storm we made. So I, again, can't multitask creativity. Got to go on Good Morning America. I mean, <laughs> it's just shit you got to get done, you know? I know. It's, it's, been, it's been busy, Brad. Yeah. I, hey, I get it. And are the other books, including the story collection, set in Malaysia? Uh, the story collection is mostly set in Malaysia. I think there may be one or two that are not. But yeah, they're, they're coming of age... So they're they're not historical. Thank goodness, ne- never doing that again. Um, uh, but they are set maybe in the two thousands, nineties, like up after the two thousands, kind of like girls and women coming of age in like post colonial uh, Malaysia. So it obviously doesn't deal with colonialism directly, but it does deal with like having a colonial heritage, have Western beauty standards and culture and things like that. And, you know, girls and women just being very wild and feral and trying to figure themselves out. All right. So it's a, it's, I think it's pretty fun. It's like a, it's entertaining, less sad than the one that you read. So you're not going to have to like inject a spy into any of these stories. Well, you have we'll to see. wait and see. <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. All right. Well, congratulations to you. Thank you so much for the time. And I'm glad we got to uh, spotlight this in the book club this month. Thank you so much, Brad. It was wonderful. 
All right, you guys, there we have it. That was my conversation with Vanessa Chan. Her debut novel is called The Storm We Made, available now from Mary Sue Rucci Books. It is the official February 2024 selection of the Other People Book Club. It is a national bestseller. For more on Vanessa Chan, visit her website, vanessajchan.com. Follow her on Twitter and Instagram. One more time, the book is called The Storm We Made. It is out there now, available wherever books are sold. Go get your copy right away. Don't forget to subscribe to The Other People Show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. If you would like to receive my weekly email newsletter, sign up for free at bradlisty.substack.com. And if you want to join the Other People Patreon community, don't forget to do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to become a member of the Other People Book Club, get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. If you have a couple of minutes and you want to be kind, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever it is, rate the show, review the show. It helps the show find new listeners. If you would like to get some other people apparel, a t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that at otherppl.com. And last but not least, I have a book out. It's almost two years old, my latest book. It is a novel called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if you would like to read my novel and learn even more about my psyche, you can do that. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up on Friday, there will be a brand new flashback episode where I dig into the other people archives and share an outtake from an episode out of the past. And then on Sunday, I will be talking with Lauren Markham. She has a new book out called A Map of Future Ruins available from Riverhead. It is about human migration and the immigration crises that are unfolding all over the planet as we speak. A very illuminating conversation with Lauren Markham coming up on Sunday. So, stay tuned.